Hi, everybody. This is God Sad for the Sad Truth. Today, I have with me one of the certainly most uh, cited psychologists alive today, Richard Nisbet. How are you doing, sir? Very good. How are you? Very good. Thanks. A real pleasure to meet you. Just for some people who may not know who you are, not everybody is up on the... Uh, the, the psychologist ecosystem. You are the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished Professor of Social Psychology at University of Michigan. I'll have a personal story about University of Michigan to tell you later on. Uh, uh, you are the co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program at that university. Uh, some of the books that you've, writ you've written, let me just mention them. Uh, I'll also put them in the description of the uh, in the description section of our chat. Human Inference, Induction, The Person and the Situation, Rules for Reasoning, Culture of Honor, which is very relevant to me since I come from the Middle East, The Geography of Thought, Intelligence and How to Get It, Mindware, and then your latest book, to, uh, which we're going to talk about today and maybe talk about some other ones, Thinking a Memoir. So let's start with, with your memoir. Give us a quick synopsis of your brilliant and interesting life story. Well, um, thank you very much. My life story begins, uh, in, uh, well, begins in 1941 in Texas, uh, and um, I, uh, excuse me, um, I grew up in the desert uh, of El Paso uh, and decided to go to college uh, at a place called Tufts, which I had never heard of, but I graduated from high school uh, in January, so I wanted to get started on college right away. Uh, so I looked at the Lovejoy's catalog to find that New England liberal arts college with February admissions with the highest average SAT score. So never heard of it, but okay, it's tough. Uh, then um, in Boston, uh, right? That's right. Uh, so um, I thought I. I knew I didn't fit in Texas, so I thought, well, maybe I'm a New Englander. Uh, no, actually, that turned out not to be the case. It turns out to be I'm closer to being New York Jewish uh, than any other ethnicity I've ever discovered. So that's my uh, personal life in a nutshell. I've taught at several universities. Uh, the, uh, the book uh, is partly personal autobiography, uh, but mostly it's about the work I've done over the years. Um, I've studied reasoning, with the exception of the culture of honor. Uh, all of my other work has been about reasoning. What kinds of problem solving do we do that's conscious, and what kind is unconscious? What kinds of errors do we make? Uh, how can we improve those? Uh, uh, so that we don't make so many errors, uh, and cultural differences in reasoning between East Asia and uh, the West. Uh, and I've studied IQ uh, after a year, after many years of looking at um, reasoning. I started looking at the formal way that people measure IQ uh, and came to the conclusion that it's sort of disastrously bad um, in several ways. What we think the testing isn't bad, but what we think we've learned from the testing, a lot of it is, is quite mistaken. Uh, so that's it in a nutshell. So it's so the book is not so much, you know, personal stories that might have unique interests. It's rather a trajectory of your intellectual pathway through your career. That's right. It, that's what it mostly is. Uh, but... Uh, uh, because it's a somewhat unusual life, uh, I spend some t amount of time on the uh, autobiographical aspects of it. Um, and in addition to that, um, I even during the autobiographical parts, I talk about the ideas I had when I was much younger that came to fruition uh, when I became a researcher. Uh, I'll... I'll, I'll... I'll drill down on many of the you know research interests that you've tackled, some of which are also within my own research interests. But is there anything that you thought earlier in your career that the weight of evidence has now caused you to alter your your position on that thing? And if so, what are some of these things? Um, 
Well, I came to realize that most of our thinking, including our reasoning about the most important matters, goes on unconsciously. We're simply not where we could, can't report it. <clears throat> so that was a real surprise. Um, I mean, Freud got the least of it, right? I mean, it's much, much more is unconscious and not for the reasons that Freud talked about. Uh, not because we're trying to bury stuff that we don't want to know, but simply we don't have the mental apparatus to survey our reasoning processes. Uh, and, and my uh, people think, well, how, how can that be? Well, why would you want that? It would take a huge amount of computational space. Right. Uh, to be able to observe everything. Uh, imagine if you had to do the computational s stuff to, to, to see things. Our, we don't know how our eyes work, they just work, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, uh, uh, as you're speaking, there are so many different places I wanna go, so I'm getting excited. Uh, just to give you a bit of a background of uh, uh, you know, some of my background and see where we can potentially intersect. So I was trained at uh, Cornell and, you know, my first semester, I took courses with uh, Dave Dunning and Dennis Regan. And so that was the first time that I ever heard your name, uh, you know, either in a methodology context or, of course, fundamental attribution error. Uh, now, during that first semester, and I've told the story before, but you probably don't know it, so it's, it's worth repeating. During that first semester, Dennis Regan had assigned a... Um, it was an advanced social psychology course, and he assigned about halfway through the semester a book by Daly and Wilson to the pioneers of EP, evolution psychology, called Homicide, where they explored, you know, patterns of criminality using an evolutionary lens. And that was my epiphany, because I was interested in studying consumer choice and psychology of decision making. And now I had found a way whereby I would use the organizing framework and the parsimony of evolutionary psychology to study you know, consumer behavior, hence I'm housed in a business school. Uh, so then the next question to you would be, because I'm, I'm very much trained also within the Kahneman and Tversky tradition. My former doctoral supervisor, who, whom I think you know, is Jay Russo, the cognitive psychologist, who was part of the gang of Tversky and Kahneman. They actually studied all together at Michigan in the PhD program uh, back late in, in the 60s. What, what I didn't like about all that stuff uh, notwithstanding how brilliant it is, is that it was seldom rooted in an evolutionary framework. It was, here is Homo economicus, as postulated by the classical economists, and let us show you the 13 trillion ways by which this unicorn mythical creature doesn't abide by what we do. I was a lot more interested in understanding, well, but what, what are the evolutionary mechanisms that have created the human mind rather than how we're different from economists? So how much of your work is rooted, whether it be the reasoning or the culture, is rooted within an evolutionary lens? Well, um, actually, I'm, I'm a fan of evolutionary psychology. Uh, Michigan was, at of one point, clear home uh, of yeah. evolutionary psychology. And uh, Randy Nessie, who was one of the founders, uh, keeps pressing me uh, to talk about the evolutionary aspect of what I've found about uh, reasoning. I'm not optimistic that I, that I can ever learn anything about that. The main thing I have to say about evolution and the kind of work I've done <clears throat> uh, is that um, however our basic processes evolved, our reasoning was, is designed uh, to deal with the hunter-gatherer situation. And uh, when you look at the kinds of demands that are placed on us today for thinking, they just have nothing to do with hunter-gatherer. I mean, uh, it's, it's a totally different world, and it's mostly a different world because it's so dependent on information that comes to us from sources that we were never prepared to deal with. I mean, data, uh, for which you have to have some probabilistic or statistical rules are your, you know, just, you, you can't live in our, our present world without that. You can't live uh, very effectively uh, without having a, a, some kind of idea about how to do cost-benefit analysis. So um, there just are different forms of information, different demands on us that evolution never prepared us for. And so we, you know, it's, it's like, 
evolution never prepared us for getting nearsighted uh, from reading because nobody was doing any reading. Hence my glasses. <laughs> right. Uh, actually, the funny story about how I began to be aware that it's the reading that makes everybody uh, so um, so um, nearsighted. I was once walking in Cambridge with three other college student friends, and uh, there were some townies there, people who were not going to college and were, were never going to go to college. It's a, it's a working class neighborhood. Uh, and they started laughing. They said, look at those guys. They're all wearing glasses. I said, well, hello. Doesn't everybody wear glasses? So I, I then I came up with a hypothesis. What's different between me and these guys? Oh, I've spent my life reading, and they probably have. So, but it, I'm not sure that uh, ophthalmologists admit today that what's making you nearsighted is the reading. I mean, it's a, you know, yeah. it, it's too bad because we do all we have, all have to do it, and some of us are going to get uh, bad vision as a result. But thank goodness we can circumvent our evolutionary history with. Eyeglasses. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you mentioned ophthalmologists and you mentioned Randy Nesse. I've had him on the show. He's a fantastic guy. I love the fact that he, you know, has been a crusader, if I can say it this way, of trying to Darwinize the, 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 the medical school, because that's exactly what I've been trying to do in the context of the business school. And while I've certainly made effort, you know, imp, you know, progress compared to 25 years ago, it is still quite difficult for most of my colleagues to accept that biology is in any way relevant in explaining employee behavior and employer behavior and consumer behavior. So they are completely convinced that somehow when you put on those hats, you exist on a supraplane that is bereft of your biology. It's simply hallucinatory that they would think this way. And which brings me, by the way, and I want to come back to reasoning in, in a bit and how you could link it to evolutionary theory. But this brings me to the story that I promised you that I would tell you about University of Michigan. Uh, so in 2007 or 8, I had been invited when my first book had come out where I lay the, the, the ground for how you would Darwinize consumer behavior and consumer psychology. I had been invited to the psychology department uh, at University of Michigan to speak. And then the next day I would be speaking, giving the same talk. They, they had cleared me to give the same talk at the business school. So on the Thursday, I think I gave the talk at... Uh, the psychology department and you know it was you know and these are tough crowds i mean these are really wonderful accomplished people and you know they loved it yes of course evolutionary psychology matters blah 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 i give the exact same talk at the business school the next day it was by far by multiple orders of magnitude the most hostile academic crowd that i have ever faced i couldn't finish a single sentence uh I'm sure you've never given talks to English professors. But okay. <laughs> oh, is that right? Are they? Are they? Are they? Oh, are, oh they're hopeless. They're, they're hopeless they're, in their uh, aggression. Huh? In their aggressivity, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, I mean, it's just I, I can't say anything to a group of humanists without be, them being ready to crucify. Oh, English professors, and that's it. I thought you meant English, meaning they're from Britain. No, no. I was thinking, well, I, I don't get, okay, sorry, English professors, okay, as a discipline. Uh, so anyway, so that was the story. But coming back to reasoning, if I may, or unless you want to say something about the, the Michigan Business School crowd, do you want to weigh in on that? Well, no, I mean, I'm, I actually am a little bit puzzled by that. I mean, Michigan is... Uh, it's please people are decent here they're polite it's midwestern nice uh now university of chicago no I'm, i've given talks of chicago i mean they, they'll oh, yeah. the, it's it's you know it's piranhas there but so i'm surprised to hear that uh that uh u of m business again come to think of it, i can't think of anybody in the from the business school who's ever been involved with evolutionary psychology exactly. stuff Oh, there, there were two people who were big supporters, and I've uh, maintained a friendship with one. But other than those two people, everybody else was. As a matter of fact, uh, one person, you know how you meet people before you actually go to the talk, you meet them privately in their office. So one mm -hmm. professor said to me, well, I'm not exactly sure, you know, why you study uh, evolution, evolution psychology, because I mean, that's really an unfalsifiable theory. So, to which I thought it was so hopeless to then engage him that I just deflected and said, oh, so how long have you been at University of Michigan for? Because for me to try to 
prove to him that the amount of evidence in support of evolution is probably as strong as the amount of evidence for the existence of gravity seemed uh, unnecessary at that point. But I mean, I still, I still face those things. And of course, people like David Buss and Nessie and the rest of them have been facing it for, for generations, right? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I talk with Randy from time to time. And I say, oh, God, how, do you, how can you stand it? I mean, he's, <laughs> he was actually, uh, he, I don't know if you know that he founded, well, first of all, he founded the field of evolutionary psychiatry. And uh, he was hired by the University of uh, uh, of Arizona, at, at for to uh, Arizona State, I mean, uh, to run an evolution and medicine outfit, and he had to deal with people who would call him a fascist if he said, you know, that any the difference between the way men and women like to behave might have anything to do with yeah. biology. I mean, it's just. You know, I, I think you, you make more progress with evangelical Christians in the deep south than with. <laughs> it, it, it is so true. But I mean, by the way, that speaks again. I don't I don't mean to be, to be plugging my work, but in my latest book, the, in the, the Parasitic Mind, I talk about idea pathogens that parasitize people's brains. Well, I mean, first of all, the ones who, who are the creators of the parasitic ideas are university professors. And then the ones who promulgate them are university professors. So the fact that you are a highly educated, supposedly sophisticated intellectual does not inoculate you against bad thinking. So as since that's the title of your memoir, it, it is proof that even the highfalutin ivory tower folks can be just as dumb as the rest of folks. Yes, actually... <laughs> I'm thinking about writing an article uh, about the stupidity of smart people. I mean, not all of them, but I mean, it, it's Hillary Clinton was the smartest law student when she was in law school at Yale Law, which is the best in the U.S. And, uh, and that requires super high IQ. And yet she did. She ran two incredibly stupid campaigns for president of the U.S. I mean, they were incompetent in so many ways. Uh, and, you know, is she smart? Yeah, she's smart. But, you know, but there are these, you know, lacuning uh, yeah. holes in the, in the reasoning in all of us. But it, they're people as prominent as Hillary Clinton. They, they're, they're under the uh, magnifying glass all the time. I suspect, and I mean, not, not to get into a political conversation, but of course we can from a psychological perspective. My feeling is that uh, the reason for some of her failures is kind of an inability to be introspective about her inauthenticity, right? There's a sense of entitlement that came with, you know, I am the chosen queen, therefore I don't need to work hard. Whereas the mm -hmm. other, her competitor was working, you know, 50 times as hard because he really wanted it. She thought she was anointed and she's, she's completely blind to her inauthenticity. Now, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I mean, when I see her, I mean, look, and I'm in Canada, I always remind people, I, I don't have a dog in the fight. But I'm, if, I, if I look at it from a psychological perspective, when I see someone like Kamala Harris or someone like Hillary, precisely because you mentioned Hillary, I cringe at how inauthentic. They are like robots, right? So whether you like Donald Trump's policies or not, and there are many reasons to like him or dislike him, and they, they're all valid, he's authentic to a fault. So could that have been maybe the main thing that she wasn't able to to rein in about herself? Yeah, I, I think that's a very good analysis. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, um, I used to say about Richard Nixon that most, of course, all politicians lie, but most of them do a, have a filter. Can I tell the truth here? And if the answer is, yeah, I'll do that. Nixon would say, uh, can I get away with a lie here? <laughs> Even about things that don't, that didn't matter. That would have, I mean, so, but I have a, a rule about Democratic nominees for president. And that is if they're a stick, a, a British word, which you as a Canadian you might know, if they, sticks do not win the presidency. And if you think, look back, Adlai Stevenson was a stick. Um, the, uh, Governor of Massachusetts, who I can never think oh, of. Oh, uh, Dukakis? Dukakis was a stick. Yeah. Uh, Gore was a stick. Uh, and Hillary Clinton was a stick. I mean, it's just... And the, the Republicans, uh, they don't have that many sticks. I, it's, I don't... Actually, I, 
I can't think why offhand. I, I'm, I'm at a loss for an explanation of why the Republicans, they produce a lot of people I don't like, that's for sure. But sticks, no, not really. Interesting. Uh, going back, if you don't mind us jumping back and forth, uh, when you were talking about, uh, you know, you don't see how necessarily an evolutionary lens might inform your work or be relevant to your work, although you are a supporter of evolutionary psychology. So I thought of two possible lines. Uh, which I'm almost certain that you would know of. One, of course, is Tubi and Cosmetis's, you know, waste and task, right? Where, where, when you give people that task using abstract terms, then they're unable to complete it or or complete it at a much lower rate. But then, when you give it using an evolutionarily relevant context, suddenly your capacity to, in this case, reason solve that task improves. So, would that not be a very, very tangible bit, way by which? Uh, the study of reasoning and thinking and an evolutionary lens have proved to be quite fruitful. And then I'll give the second example after. Yeah, uh, Actually, I'm not a fan of their work. Okay, why is that? No. Uh, I mean, they're perfectly right uh, to, to the demonstration that if you give people meaningful material, uh, they can solve the Wason task. Uh, but uh, the idea that the, that is because we have some kind of biological inheritance for that. It might be true. It might well be true that there is a biological inheritance for understanding the, the permission uh, schema. But but learning could also give us that schema. I'm in a, just living in a world where we're seeing uh, the need for reasoning about permission or obligation. I mean, it's... Uh, uh, so it, it isn't that I think... The, the data are wrong. Uh, it's that I think they don't they don't establish that we have wiring for the permission schema or the wasting schema. I mean, if I were and not to be their spokesperson, but I think what they might argue is that one of the possible ways that you might rule out the alternative sort of learning explanation is for you could you could establish that phenomenon as as you well know i'm speaking to a guru of culture so i don't need to be telling you about this the universality of that effect so that you could take tribes or peoples that are otherwise have evolved or not evolved in an evolutionary sense but have grown up in a completely different learning ecosystem and they exhibit the same effect and another one i might add is people who suffer from particular i think brain damage will then have a, you know, that effect won't manifest itself. So there's a particular centralized place where that type of... Pro so could we have built a nomological network of cumulative evidence that would otherwise convince you that it is an adaptation rather than due to learning? I, I could be convinced. I, I'm going to... You've prompted me to get Randy to give the evidence. Because I'm sure he's going to know the evidence okay. uh, since the initial demonstration. Because I... I'm, I'm perfectly happy to be corrected if I'm wrong about that. Uh, this, this, by the way, what you just said is exactly how a real scientist should think is exhibiting epistemic humility. And that's one of the difference between political debates and what, you know, a very esteemed psychologist just said. I'm perfectly happy to be shown wrong if the evidence is there. That's what makes science the liberating epistemology that it is. It doesn't care about your personal feelings. That, right? It's humble. Um, the second example I was oh, going to... I, I go, go do, let me just um, sure. uh, respond to that because uh, I once gave a talk at Rockefeller University and there were a lot of uh, New York business people in the audience and somebody asked me a question and I said, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just I, I, can't, I don't have any information about that really. And afterward he came up and talked to me and said, I thought it was very interesting that you admitted to not knowing something. In business, you can't do that. You can't just... <laughs> I don't know. Is that true? You would... No. So, I, so I, I, have, I have two ways to answer this. Uh, look, uh, when I get up in front of my business school students and they ask me a question that stumps me, I, I give the exact same answer that you gave, which is, wow, that's a great question. You know what? Send me an email and I'll look into it. I actually think that's a great way to answer in that it, it, it builds trust. Because right. this, this, I would think so. I think in the business world, because oftentimes there is, you know, it's on hyper steroid of Machiavellian intent, right? Uh, therefore, 
showing that I don't know something might suggest weakness, might suggest I'm not. Per- so I think it ends up being sort of a fast and frugal shortcut to I, you know, it's, it's weakness. I wasn't prepared. Therefore, BS. And hopefully you can wow them with your BS. Uh, but I don't really think that in the context of the, the, the university setting, if you're at a business school, you should be BSing. But maybe in the yeah. practice of business more so. Does, does that make sense? Right, it does. Uh, second example, uh, Richard, of how we might apply an evolutionary lens to reasoning. I don't. I, I think you would know this book. Uh, Dan Serber and Hugo Mercier, the book on theory of, is it called, I, I, I cited in my latest book, Theory of Argumentation. Is that, was that what it was called? I, I don't know that book. And you're certainly right to expect that I would, uh, but I don't. Oh, you know what? I, 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 I so encourage you to read it i think you, i think you're going to love it especially someone who's as as much of a accomplished person in in, in the in, in studying reasoning what they basically argue if i can vulgarize it this is a word by the way that in english people don't like i remember my 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 uh, publish uh, publisher at one point had said don't use that word in french when you say to vulgarize it means to simplify, to put it in, in a way that is... But somehow in English, it means like, oh, it's vulgar. They don't understand the distinction. So so I'm using it in the French sense. So I, I heard it in the French sense. Oh, thank you. There you go. Do you, you I'm know, married to a French scholar. Oh, there you go. Okay, so, so to vulgarize what they talked about, they basically said that we haven't evolved uh, the reasoning faculty to pursue truth because in, in in the chapter that i was that i cite them i'm talking about how to seek truth epistemologically how do you seek truth and rather we've evolved the reasoning capacity to prove that we are right that's why it makes it so difficult to anchor people off their positions even though the incoming evidence contrary to your epistemic humility should suggest that you should change your opinion mm-hmm. and i think they incorporate some evolutionary twists so I guess we won't talk about it anymore now, but please, if you do end up reading it, I would love to, even if privately, for you to send me what you think about it. Do you, do you know them, by the way? Do you know either of them? I, I know Dan quite well. He actually spent a semester here. Uh, he is the person I know most likely to have been a visiting professor at any particular place in the world. I mean, he's... Uh, sought after by psychologists because he's a very good psychologist, by anthropologists because he's an anthropologist, and uh, by people in the legal field. Uh, the argumentation kind of thing is, will tell you. Exactly. That's enough to know that he, he's going to be interesting to, to legal scholars. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. So, so I will certainly look at the book, but give me the name again or send okay. it to you. I'll send it to you. It's somewhere behind me. I can't remember the name, but I'll send it to you. Uh, I mean, you mentioned psychology, anthropology, legal. One of the things that has defined my career to a fault, and I'll ask you to comment on it, is that I am a true intellectual variety seeker. In other words, I do exactly what one shouldn't do according to the rules of academia, which is you know, uh, focus on one particular area, drill down, keep producing plus epsilon studies, study one, study two. So I go all over the place. Uh, I publish in medical journal on uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which has absolutely nothing to do with anything in the business school. I publish things in bibliometrics. I publish things, of course, in consumer behavior, in evolutionary theory. If Richard Nisbet comes to me and says, hey, God, I think this might be a cool project for us to look at. I never, I don't have the mental module to incorporate a careerist calculus of is this good for my career because I'm I'm truly a purist so I'm 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 an interdisciplinarian by by temperament and yet universities say they want that but they don't reward that as a matter of fact they look at my CV with derision oh you're all over the place god so what's your thinking about this how can we improve the commitment to interdisciplinarity and so on uh, honestly I don't know I mean I'm certainly an interdisciplinarian myself. I, I claim to have collaborated seriously with a wider range of academics than anybody I know. I mean, it's just, uh, and, you know, I look at, although the core of my work is on reasoning, uh, it's, you know, many different aspects of reasoning. Uh, and, and I'm certainly interested in a, a wide range of things as well. Uh, but I, I know what you're talking about. I mean, uh, universities, I mean, it's, um, they don't have 
they don't have an optimal uh, reinforcement system. Uh, I mean, Ohio State uh, social psychology tells you when you get a job there how many Journal of Personality and Social Psychology papers you have to publish in order to get tenure. I mean, just that's revolting to me. <laughs> I, I'm with you. <laughs> so, any rate, so you you can get away with it at at, at some point. Well, you business schools I've been told are not very they they do expect you to do stuff that's relevant to business, right? I mean, and I know some at some schools you can get away with murder. I mean, Stanford, uh, I thought Michigan, but I have a student actually who had some trouble getting tenure because although the work was superb, it wasn't clear how it was related to business. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's lip service that's granted to the idea that it should be rooted in some real world. But the reality is that what ends up happening in, in, in many cases with business school faculties is that they simply do the theoretical research and kind of couch it in the context of managerial psychology or consumer psychology or, you know, uh, Right. So, so it, 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 you know, many people have lamented about the fact that the research ends up being quite esoteric and fully removed from uh, practical considerations, which is a real shame because I think you can be very rigorous while still ta tackling, a, you know, relevant and applied problems. Uh, so next thing I wanted to talk about is, are there any psychologists that you've met that uh, upon meeting them, you know, you you be, I mean, and you don't have to name names. That you love their work, but I, I'm trying to ask this question because you wrote a memoir, so it's the personal stories that are fun. That upon meeting them, you were greatly disappointed in their intellectual capabilities. So you had an image of them as this great scholar, but then you you hang out with them in a in a private party, and you're like, this person is dull and dumb. Right. No, Don't. it happens. It does happen. Yeah. I mean, some very famous people. Um, and it's, I mean, you may misfire with anybody. Who knows it? But but they have a reputation for being astonishingly uninteresting, <laughs> despite the fact that the work is excellent. Yeah, it happens. And it's a version of, of the intelligence story. I mean, you can be super, super smart, but not be able to carry on an intellectual discussion uh, very effectively. It, frankly, I have found in my, I mean, your career has been obviously much longer than mine, but in my career, I have found to, to, to my chagrin that while, of course, you know, most of my colleagues in their own unique ways and their own expertise are very bright people, very few of the folks that I've met meet my standard and expectation of what it is to be an intellectual. You, you see what I mean? I, I don't mean a professional professor. I mean an intellectual. You know, I could sit down with a philosopher of aesthetics and really immerse myself in a conversation because I'm just wide-eyed. And as I said, I'm an intellectual variety seeker. Uh, is there a way that that can be trained into people? Or is this something that is innate? So sort of going back to the nature-nurture question, what's your yeah. feeling? I must say I have a heavy bias toward assuming you either have it or you don't. That's what I, mean, I think too, yeah. I mean, it actually is a thing that's interested me in my, my whole life of people who are smarter than I am who are not very interested in things. I mean, it's just, to me, it's, it's inconceivable that you could be really, really smart and not have, and not be an intellectual and be a million miles from being an intellectual. There's a uh, a term that uh, a good friend of mine who is who is certainly someone who's very interesting, if not some people think divisive. I don't know if you know the author, Lebanese author. I'm also Lebanese. Uh, his name is Nassim Talib. Uh, do you, <laughs> you're smiling. Should I stop and let you fill in, or 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 should I okay, keep going? Uh, yeah, I'll go. Ahead. I'll jump in and you'll go. see. What, he's brilliant. I mean. Uh, a lot of the stuff he's, he comes up with is just fantastic, but I know I would hate him when I'm from, from reading him. <laughs> Why do you say that? Go g give it to me, Richard. The doctor is listening. Well, no, I I can't I can't point to chapter and verse, but it's just it's the egotism, the 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 laziness. I mean, he you know, he, he's 
he's saying stuff that if he knew a little bit more, he would have said it differently or he would have given it a better evidence base. But there's no denying the brilliance. I mean, it's uh, it, it's uh, you'll probably know. I've thought that he, I, I'm not sure I read this in his, in his work, but uh, Lebanon was it, everything was terrific, and uh, there was peace, and all these different groups, and and the economy kept improving. And then suddenly, it fell apart. When I read that, is that and that 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 had to do with. Uh, an important impact on his thinking is that yeah so uh you may or may not know we i'm i'm lebanese jewish we were part of the last uh bastion of uh steadfastly refusing to leave the middle east jews most jews had been completely extirpated from the middle eastern reality but there was a very very small jewish community that had remained in lebanon and and i happened to be one of those my family happened to be and when the civil war broke out in 1975 it suddenly no longer was feasible nor possible to be Jewish in Lebanon. So we had to put on some really good running shoes and run really quickly, lest we desire to have our heads uh, severed from the rest of our bodies. And so, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Well, you should you should look into my personal history because it's 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 a it maybe if I ever end up writing a memoir, I will be. Although in chapter one of the parasitic mind, I really do get into it because I I discuss my personal journey in Lebanon as a background to understanding why I think identity politics is such a loathsome, uh, loathsome uh, uh, idea pathogen. Because, uh, you know, Lebanon is the perfect society if you want to organize the entire society along sectarian lines, right? Because the president has to be of a particular religion, the prime minister has to be of another, the number of parliamentarians that sit in parliament are allocated as a function of which religious heritage you have. You you walk around with an internal ID uh, akin to a passport so that if the cops stop you, the number one thing that is written on your on that internal ID is your religion. And Jews, it wasn't even written Jew. It was written uh, Israelite. So in Arabic, you, uh, Arabic is my mother tongue. So in Arabic, for Jew is Yehudi, whereas uh, it was written Israeli. So it even created greater animus towards the Jews. So I think Lebanon was a great place in the same way that when you say, well, this, this guy was jogging, he seemed perfectly healthy until he dropped of a heart attack, right? So everything is great until it's not great. So Lebanon was great only because there is this tension of coexistence. But then once some fire is lit, then all hell break loose. And so to me, it's terrible that I'm now seeing that in the United States, it is considered to be laudable to organize your entire society along identity political lines. It's unbelievable. Yeah, no, it's 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 terrifying. I was terrified by the Lebanon situation uh, long before I ever heard of Trump. I mean, right. uh, but now it, it's truly. I mean, you do Americans. I think all Americans, thoughtful Americans, say it. It could come apart here. It absolutely. It could. really can. And I, I've been warning people for well over two decades. People at first thought I was engaging in hyperbole when I said, "Look, Lebanon is going to come to a neighborhood near you. It might take twenty years. It might take fifty years. But if you remove the liberating foundational values of individual dignity and you go along a collectivist ethos, there's only one way this goes. We've seen it in the Balkans. We've seen it in Rwanda. We've seen it in Lebanon. We've seen it throughout history. The 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 the, the movie has already been played a million times. But the reason I want to close the loop on on Nassim just so that people know why I mentioned him. When you talked earlier that you were interested in writing an article on smart people who are dumb, well, Nassim has coined a term that I think you'd find quite interesting and enjoyable for your article. I think he calls them intellectual yet idiots. Intellectual I, yet idiots or yes. imbeciles. I can't remember. It's it's I-Y-I. So I think that framework that he developed might be relevant to your own article. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. No, that's that's the idea exactly. There's, I think there's a, isn't there a, a Yiddish term for? I think I'm pretty sure there is a Yiddish term for someone who, for just this kind of person. I mean, you know, it's, it's smart on the surface, but but a, but a fool. But a fool, exactly. Uh, uh, 
Okay, let me ask you this, uh, linking it to the memoir. So, and you probably know this, but I'm going to mention it for our listeners. Uh, one of my professors at Cornell was Tom Gilovich, who was the, I mean, I don't know if he was the founder of this, but certainly the one who's most known for today of studying the psychology of regret, specifically regret due to action versus regret due to inaction. Uh, I really regret the fact that I cheated on my wife and now we're divorced versus I really regret that I never pursued a dancing career. I never wanted to be an accountant. So having written a memoir, would it be okay if I were to ask you looking back at your life, what are your top say two or three regrets and do they match with Gilovich's theory? Well, um, there's a, a great, speaking of English professors and I don't often, uh, but um, an English professor at Yale who was incredible. I mean, he, you could say, you know, act three of Lear, the second speech, and he would rattle it off. I mean, the, but he was ab absolutely, I can't recall his name offhand. Maybe it'll come up later, uh, but uh, maybe it'll pop into my head later. Uh, but he said, you know, uh, when, when he turned 70, he started thinking about all the occasions in his life in which he had been terribly embarrassed. <clears throat> when I turned 70, I started thinking about the occasions on, on which I had been unkind to someone. And it, 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 it really, and then it's a, it's a and I'm, I'm pretty kind. I mean, and my students like me and so on, but I mean, I can be worse than brusque. Uh, and uh, it's, um, so, and I, and I still have, that reverberates today, you know, that, you know, uh, oh my God, there's so-and-so, I've forgotten about, you know, what I said to him that I really should not have said. <clears throat> so it's a recurrent, multiple regrets, all centered on uh, being less kind than I might have been. Uh, what other regrets do I have? Uh, well... Nothing as interesting as that, that's for sure. Right. I mean, uh, I, I remember uh, when I graduated from college, uh, how many of my friends were saying, oh, my wasted youth. I mean, you know, I, I should have I worked harder in college and maybe I'd be in Yale Law School instead of, you know, Michigan Law School or whatever. Um, and uh, uh, I didn't have that because I worked 40-hour weeks. I mean, I was determined I, I was going to do as well as I possibly could. I was very, very ambitious. Um, but I had no social life. <laughs> so uh, I, I sort of wasted my college years in the sense that, you know, I didn't have a very good social life. So uh, most of the people with regrets about their college years were, you know, that they, they, could, they should have worked harder and they could have had a more productive life. Do you well that you know, listen? The, the, I, I think the fewer regret that one has when they've reached your stage of life, that could be a proxy measure of a life well lived. Could, could, could we say that you think? I, I, yes, I think so. Although with, with, with a few holes here and there, <laughs> right? Uh, now, in your, in your book, in, in, in Thinking a Memoir, your latest book. Uh, the dedication, I'm going on memory, is it to Susan, 50 years, something like that? Is, right. is Susan's your wife, if I may ask? Right. right. Uh, so could it be, and I'm asking this both because I think it's an interesting question to ask someone uh, who's written a memoir, but also from a selfish perspective. Uh, in my next book, I talk about sort of the recipe for the good life. And so you'll see in a second why I think this question is relevant to that eventual book. Uh, I talk about, you know, choose your mate wisely. Uh so do you think that having had, you've been married 50, 50 plus years, right? Right. Uh, would, you, would you agree that, so in my book, in my next book, I talk about two choices that you have to make that either will impart great happiness to you or great misery. Choose the right mate and choose the right profession because most of your time you're going to spend it either at the family and at the job. And if these two are good or bad, you're well on your way to trajectory of Mount Happiness or M Mount Hell. Uh, yes. 
Is there a recipe that you can offer? And I understand that David Buss is the guru of mate choice, but is there a recipe that you can offer given your longstanding happy marriage as to how we pick the right mate? Well, blind, dumb luck. (laughs) Really? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I... This is hard, even for someone of your age to understand, but when I was in my mid-20s, mid to late 20s, I wasn't married, and people thought, that he must be a confirmed bachelor. I mean, (laughs) really, if you weren't married at 26 or 27, you know, what's up there? Uh, And I I dated a lot. I was making up for not having done that much in college. Uh, And... Basically, I dated people until I decided I couldn't spend my life with them. And then I stopped the relationship because it wasn't fair to continue it. Um, And I began to think, you know, it may well be the case. I'll never find anyone. So I foolishly accepted a job at Yale rather than the possibility, actually, of a job at Harvard. without thinking through, there wasn't going to be anybody to date in New Haven. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a you know it's a very working class town except for the academy, uh, and except for the Yale. Um, and I happened to have a friend who had a wife who had a friend, who had a friend, who turned out to be my wife. So you should get together with her. And um, I spent one night, one evening with her, <laughs> uh, and realized that I would, I was going to ask her to be my wife. Wow. There's no, no doubt in my mind. Did she share those sentiments, or did she have to be no, persuaded? No, no, she thought we had nothing in common and didn't expect to see me again. <laughs> so I had to be pretty persistent and persuasive. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and, and after 50 years, I've yet to meet another woman I think I could be married to. I mean, it's... so. Um, Wow. Well, I do think that there is maybe a few uh, recipe elements that can increase your likelihood of finding the right person. And I think you referred to it in in the answer to your wife when she said, I don't think that we had anything in common. Well, I think that you did have things in common. Maybe she hadn't seen them because the, the old adage that birds of a feather flock together is sort of mating is certainly true. And we know this from certainly from tons of evolution psychology studies. I think for short term mating, opposites attracts might work well, right? If I just want a little short dalliance, I'm introverted, you're extroverted, let's go at it and have fun. But for over the long horizon, I think if we share similar values, similar beliefs, similar mindsets, that surely is going to put the probability of success in, on our side, don't don't you think? Right. Well, I mean, my wife and I are so different uh, in so many ways, but she has the attributes that are crucial to me. She's very, very smart. She's very kind. She's the most liked person I know. And I joke that, that that's the only person I Oh, that's ask. the yin-yang with your unkindness. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> uh, I, the girlfriend I had before her, the serious girlfriend, was also a wonderful woman, so smart, so nice, so much fun. But I realized she couldn't stand up to me. I mean, if I were, you know... If I can get into steamroller mode, she would have no no recourse. I mean, there would she she would just have to fold, and that would be terrible. And I sensed about my wife there was a confidence there. She wouldn't let me get away with anything, and that's turned out unfortunately to be true. <laughs> she never lets me get away with anything. So very nice. Uh, Couple of more questions and then I'll, I'll I'll wrap it up. Although of course I could sit and chat with you for hours. Uh, going back to so I, I promise that we might drill down on some of the other books that you've written. So let's talk briefly since I am Lebanese and from the Middle East, where honor and shame dictates our lives. Uh, so so my question is going to come from the perspective of someone who it's a personal question, but as relating to the research that you've done. So I'm current. Well, not currently. It's been about a year that there's a, a bunch of really nefarious characters who come after me online, spreading defamation and lies and all this kind of stuff because they're what they're kind of their cult leaders trying to advance something of his. And so he's piggybacking on me and being parasitic and so on. 
Now, they will spread things in, in very, you know, in, in some comments that someone, you know, alerts me to. I didn't even know it was there. And so now, recently, I've been torn as to whether I should respond to them because my, my, my temperament is uh, to refer to kindness. I'm infinitely affable and kind to those deserving of it, but I am a relentless honey badger to the point that some people think that I'm overboard. If you cross me, if you insult me, if you spread lies about me, if you attack my honor, or in Arabic, we say sharaf, your integrity, your personhood, then I'm going to go to no ends to, to try to, to get back at you. But of course, there's also the Streisand effect, which is if you if you place the sun, the sun, the sunlight on their trolling, then it makes it much bigger than if it were languishing somewhere. So what's your perspective as somebody who studied honor? It is the optimal position for me to instantiate my integrity and defend myself to these complete irrelevant buffoons? Or is it more dignified to walk away and attenuate my desire for, you know, handling my honor? Well, I don't really have a right to an opinion. I don't know enough about your situation, but my bias there is, oh, don't go there. Forget it. Just forget it. I mean, it's among, among my regrets in life were the cases where I persisted in uh, controversies where, you know, I, it's just my advisor told me, don't ever respond to people in print. Don't ever get into it because, you know, it creates more heat than light. And I did it once. I mean, oh, my God, it just consumed me. I mean, this this battle with this. It was crazy. I mean, to put the emotional energy into it that I did. So the main thing is the emotional energy. But one thing I want to know from you. So so. Uh, I would have thought that being Jewish would be uh, a protection against the Mediterranean <laughs> culture. Of but wait, we're Mizrahi Jews. We're not the Ashkenazi Jews. So the 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 Yemeni Jew and the Iraqi Jews and the Egyptian Jews and the Syrian Jews, Lebanese. You know, we our temperament comes from the Middle East. So I think, and I, as someone who studies culture, right, I may have a lot more things in common with a Nassim Talib, who's Lebanese Christian, than I may have with a Polish Jew. So just the fact that we're both Jewish doesn't mean that we share the similar cultural temperament. Does that make sense? That's extremely interesting to me. I would have, I would never have predicted that, because I mean, because the Jews I know are Ashkenazi, and you know, and. Uh, you know, I'm quite sensitive to insults. I mean, I, I discovered, <laughs> I thought I had nothing of traditional Southern culture about me until I started studying Southern Christmas. Oh, my God, that's my culture, too, because I'm very sensitive to insults. I've done insane things uh, in protecting my home. I mean, I once walked in, found a guy rifling through my things, and uh, he ran out. And I ran after him. Now, <laughs> there's only one possible good outcome there, that I don't catch him. <laughs> and I didn't catch him. So it's another case of luck that I didn't deserve. Uh, <clears throat> but, yeah, so. Um, but, but Ashkenazi Jews, it's not their culture at all. And, and that's part of the problem in Israel, I mean, is that uh, Arabs are very sensitive to insult yeah. and Ashkenazi Jews that's their metier is insults I yeah. mean so. I think I think that the thing for me that bothers me uh, here in a sense we're, we're engaging in a deep psychoanalysis of our personhood uh, what what in, in chapter one of my last book I talk about my purity bubble so that I, I really on some things I'm very deontological in terms of my ethical stance, right? There is right and there is wrong, right? You you never I mean, sure it's okay to lie when your spouse asks you, Do I look fat in those jeans? Then you better put on your consequentialist hat because you're trying to, you know, maintain harmony and you know, not hurt their feelings. But when it comes to truth and a capital T, then I think you have to be deontological. So for me, it's not just a question of someone insulting you. Is when they, I can't existentially believe that someone could be so diabolical as to spread lies about you because they, I, and my mother used to tell me, even when I was a child, she used to say, you know, Gad, 
the world doesn't operate according to your purity bubble. So wake up. And so I think it comes from that. So it's a mixture of honor, uh, not responding well to insults, detesting lies and falsehoods and defamation. And so put it all together. But I mean, to, to your point, when you said don't do it, my publicist a year ago when these idiots started to come after me said, do not, they're not worth, I mean, if you if you even speak to them or anything, then you are giving them exactly what they want, which is that you're paying attention to them. So it's a very tough thing for someone who's so driven by honor, but but I hear you. Uh, what made you what made you work on such a project what what was it that served as the catalyst well um i felt that people were very rude in the northeast uh, in the south the word rude is used often i never heard a northeastern american use the word rude uh <laughs> and it has everything, everything i think to do with with sensitivity to insult. I mean, that was rude. So, um, and, uh, but then my joke is, uh, I did learn to, to like many things about the Northeast, one of which was that middle-class people didn't kill each other. Right. Um, and, you know, once or twice, a high school kid, not killed, but would shoot another high school kid, uh, all perfectly middle-class, the superintendent of schools were um, uh, in El Paso, where I where I live, shot uh, the school board president, uh, uh, or as I say, the other way around. I don't remember which one of them killed one of the other. I have a relative who shot her husband when she caught him, as we say, in flagrante delicto. Yes, sir. Uh, and and she was at the time. The uh, society editor of the newspaper. I mean, so all of this doesn't happen in the Northeast. I mean, so I said, oh, I filed that away. You know, why might that be? Uh, and uh, I decided 25 or 30 years ago that I was there. Were, I had lots of ideas about cultural psychology, but uh, I knew I would get clobbered, you know, you're a white male, you have no right, you know, to, so white male American. Um, so I said, well, you know, so I know something bad about white males. <laughs> I'm going to examine that. Right. Um, and so I started looking at the homicide thing uh, and was able to show that I mean, the white male population in the South was much more likely to commit suicide, homicide than a white male uh, in the north, and so they said, "Well, why is that?" Uh, and I started looking at um, um, polls, opinion polls, where you'll ask, you know, opinions, "Do you believe in an eye for an eye?" I mean, right. all that, millions of questions have been asked that are relevant to aggression, and there was nothing in that literature except three things. Uh, sensitivity to insult, it, it's appropriate to hurt someone who insults you, uh, uh, willingness to defend the home by murder, if necessary, uh, and uh, uh, socialization of children, uh, use physical uh, punishment. My, my joke about my Brooklyn-born Jewish wife is when my son was four years old, he had never been spanked. He had done something. He crossed some kind of line that I in my in my mind was requires a spanking. And she said, "You spanking, and I'm, I will leave you." Wow. <laughs> to me, that was oh, I said, you spoil the ride, and you know, say what is the expression? Um, the rods spare the rod and spoil the child exactly right so i'm going to have terrible kids no you don't actually have to i mean that particular belief is quite wrong i believe from personal experience i mean it's it's really better not to to do that so at any rate i happened to be on leave went to the south of france with my french scholar wife and i found out that the uh the, the, the South was reminiscent in some ways of, of the Italian mafia, etc. Right. 
And uh, I went to the head of the Mediterranean Studies program at Aix-en-Provence. Sure. Where, where. And, love uh, that city, by the way. What's that? I love that city. It's, it's magical. Oh, it's my favorite city yeah. in the world. It's incredible. Um, and I told him the, about the picture. He says, oh, yeah, the U.S. South is a culture of honor. And so tell me more. <laughs> so, so, and then I, I did all the right tests to show that it's a culture of honor, that um, their Southerners are extremely responsive to insults. And most of the homicide uh, that happens in the South, that's over and above the level of homicide that you get in the North for white males, uh, most of it uh, is insult related because the FBI keeps right. track. Was it a lover's quarrel? Was yeah. it a, a fight in a bar and so on? So, um, so yeah, a lot of people dying in the culture of honor. I mean, beyond beyond the sort of the, the cultural uh, or the microcultural moderator that explains this honor thing, I also think it could be, and I think that would be what Dalian Wilson would argue from, from homicide, uh, there's a socioeconomic element, right? If, if I'm a ghetto uh, you know, young man where my entire social capital is established by my street creds and you step on my new running shoes and you don't say I'm really sorry and show deference, then I'm losing a lot of capital. But two neurobiologists at Stanford who cross each other and step inadvertently on each other's toes don't need to to go to murder because their social capital is not so inextricably linked to that episode i mean doesn't that make sense as well yeah sure well the 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 uh, the ghetto is a culture of honor for sure yeah. uh and i've <clears throat> i've heard i mean there's a, a theory that oh well they picked up all this uh nasty stuff from southern whites and there's probably some truth to that but the, the driving force behind culture of honor is, uh, is your livelihood dependent on people respecting you? Right. Uh, and, uh, and in the South, the South was, was uh, uh, founded by hurting people. Right. Uh, and uh, like the Mediterranean, the Mediterraneans are herders there. <clears throat> and... If you can insult me, you can get away with murder. I've got to make it clear. You you don't do, cross me in any way or you're going to be deeply right. sorry. That's the whole, that stance. And that's the situation in the ghetto. I mean, it, it's, uh, you can lose the situation being, you can lose your livelihood uh, if you don't stick up for yourself. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. Last question for you, Richard. Uh, you're at a particular point in your career now you've had an unbelievably successful career looking forward may you live to 100 in arabic you say like may you reach 100 or it's hard to kind of describe i mean translate uh what what are the next markers for you that wake you up you know when you wake up in the morning you kind of rub your hands together in excitement what, what what's in store for richard nisbet for the next year five years ten years what, what's okay, in store well a source of excitement and terror. Other than speaking to me today uh, in our Skype chat. What's that? No, I, no, no, don't worry. I said anything that's exciting other than the fact that you were very excited at the thought about speaking with me. But go ahead. Right. right. Um, yes, in addition to that, <laughs> uh, here's the title of a book that if I write, I will have to change my email address and possibly my, my overall address. Uh -oh. It's uh, differently abled, colon, cognitive skill, ethnicity, and social justice. Oh, boy, you're hitting all of the trigger words. That's right. That's right. I get, I've already got every, virtually everybody ready to go after me. On, on uh, are you being facetious or are you really thinking about writing such a book? I am really thinking about writing that book okay. uh, because, um, well, I mean, it, <laughs> we could have a quite long conversation about what would be in that book. But finally, what something that triggered me was um, Asian Americans are overrepresented at Harvard by a factor of four to one. Right. And they are currently suing Harvard for letting in whites 
who don't have as high SAT scores as they do. I said, well, you know, wait a minute. I mean, it's that's that's crazy, and here and why? Here's some of the reasons that it's crazy. So, certainly. Anyway, that 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 book is is tempting to write. I mean, the truth is, I'm confident that you would agree with everything that's in this book, uh, and I'm confident that most intellectuals would agree. I mean, people who right. are not tied up with their ethnicity in some way. Exactly. And say, yep, that sounds right. So, well, and I, and, but the, the, the bottom line, the reason I would write it is that all of these problems of ethnicity and cognitive skill are solvable. They're being solved or they're solvable. And a lot of people think, no, 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 it's, it's the fundamental attribution error. They're that way. They'll always right. be that way. So, no, no, no. You know, uh, every every group that's suffering in some way from uh, cognitive skill because they're not getting enough praise or whatever, uh, it can be fixed, I believe. Gordon Vidal once said, there is no human problem that could not be solved if people would just do what I say. <laughs> if I try to say that to my wife, I think there'd be a looming divorce, but uh, it might work for Gore Vidal, but not in a marriage. Uh, hey, Richard, what a pleasure and honor to finally meet you. Uh, when yeah. you do write that next book, we'll have you back on. And in the meantime, I will send you the link to that book by Cerber uh, and uh, yes, Mercier, please. and you'll check it out. Please stay in touch and uh, real pleasure. I just want to say goodbye to you offline, so stay on the line. Thanks so much for coming and best of luck with your new book, Thinking a Memoir. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. All right.